Well, good morning. It's always good to see you. Glad you're here. There's many other places you could be, but I'm glad you're, you're here today. Uh, let me share a couple of things before we open God's Word today. Uh, first of all, uh, this past week, uh, Brett McDonald completed his uh, dissertation and he defended it. So uh, we're having to get used to calling him Dr. McDonald all of a sudden. But uh, yeah, Dr. Brett. And uh, so we're excited for him, proud of him and his achievement there. Uh, this week, beginning this week, we, you know, on midweek around here, it just seems like things go on all the uh, all during the week, but on midweek, Wednesdays, evening around here, we have men's studies, women's studies, we have uh, Awanas, we have our student ministry, we have elders that meet, we have a lot of things. And uh, But what we're desiring is this, beginning this Wednesday, Pastor Jim Rowan is our missions pastor, is going to start at 6.30 on the third floor of education building, just a time of prayer. And prayer and praise beginning at 6.30, it'll be over at 7.30. And uh, maybe you drop your kids off at Awanas or whatever, but it's a great opportunity for you uh, to be with Pastor Jim. And part of, um, I, I know you're like me. The last couple of weeks I've been talking about, and you've been reading in uh, media and social media about the, um, I almost hate to use the word revival because I think what God is doing, he desires to do on a normal basis. But uh, in Asbury University, in right outside of Lexington, Kentucky, they started meeting for a chapel service and they uh, have been going on. They've kind of altered it a little bit now. But um, God has been displaying his power through uh, confession and repentance. It's been incredibly sweet. And that has transferred to other college campuses. And you see, you've seen pictures on social media of other college campuses where um, students are meeting to pray, getting right with God. And it's just an awesome thing, and uh, here's my thought. I'm reminded of the old hymn that says, Pass me not, O gentle Savior. Lord, do not pass us by. I do not want to miss a move of God. Pass us not, O gentle Savior. And I want us just to pray uh, before we open God's word and see what he has to say because I desire above all else for you and I to get desperate for the move of God. And here's, you know, people try to manufacture moves of God. You can't do that. You can manufacture emotions. You can manufacture a lot of things, but you cannot manufacture a move of God. But what I've discovered is any time that God displays himself in a, in a brokenness sort of way, a powerful kind of way, the common denominator is desperation. 
He's looking for people that are desperate for him. And I, I, I am so guilty of just snacking on this world that I'm not desperate for him. And so my prayer, God, make us desperate for you. So let's, let's bow. Almighty God, we're going to open your word. And we declare that your word is holy. It's been set apart. Oh, God, we desire you. Pass us not, O oh gentle Savior. Lord, we don't want to manufacture anything. We just want a genuine, we desire a genuine move of you in our midst, Lord. And, and, and I hesitate to call it revival because, God, I, I think when I read your word and I see it in your word and I see it, God, you want to, you, you just desire that. And so, Father, I pray that you begin with me. And Lord, just break our hearts with the things that break your heart. Lord, let us not move until we're right with you. And so, Father, I just pray that we have permission here today to just respond as you speak. And Lord, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1973, a young movie director directed a movie called American Graffiti. It was, it was a uh, low-budget film, and he was making this low-budget film so he could finance a bigger production he was doing called Star Wars. And, and you know, his name is George Lucas, and he did American Graffiti. American Graffiti basically was coming of age. It was a one-night uh, thing, and some of you may have saw it. It was based in 1962. He did it in 73, but in 1962 is when the movie setting was. <clears throat> and it was a throwback. And out of that, you just felt like there was a simpler time, a good time, and these kind of things. Well, it sprung off. And a TV show developed in the 70s and early 80s called Happy Days. And we were introduced to these characters. We were introduced to Ralph Mouth, uh, Potsy, Richie Cunningham, and the Fonz. Now, we're having a generation that has no clue about that. But many of us were introduced. And, and it was called Happy Days. And the reason it's called Happy Days is that it, was a, it seemed to be a simpler time. Um, however, I, I sometimes wonder, were those days really simpler and, and happy, devoid of the struggles that this generation uh, faces today? Maybe because of the technology, but the reality is growing up in the 60s, I remember sitting down in front of the TV and we had three stations. We could watch the news, but every night at the beginning of the news, we were greeted with how many 
deaths there were in Vietnam. And we went through that for the whole of the 60s and early 70s. And uh, we, we were in the midst of a, the throes of racism also, uh, drugs, what they called free love, which seemed to culminate in 1969, not with the birth of Alan in 69, but it culminated with a little gathering called Woodstock it, that took place in New York. And these and other crises made those happy days very tumultuous. However, God in his creativity, he did something in the late 60s and early 70s. And as a country, we experienced a revolution like no other that has become known as the Jesus Movement. Now, if any of you uh, go to movies, I would recommend, I don't recommend many movies, but I would recommend Jesus Revolution. Uh, it's uh, about uh, uh, the Jesus Movement that transpired. Greg Laurie wrote a book on it, and you know the history. And many of you in this room, including me, were beneficiaries of the Jesus Movement in coming to Christ. And what happened during the Jesus Movement during this incredibly tumultuous time of Vietnam, racism, drugs, free love, what they called it, what happened is, is tens of thousands of young people uh, got saved radically. And what happened is, is what began in California made its way across America, and today we are still feeling the effects of the Jesus movement. Each generation has an identity, whether it's the baby boomers, baby busters that they were known as, the millennials, the Gen Xers, the Gen Zs, whatever generation you may be a part of, each generation has its own identity, and each culture tries to win over and influence that generation. Culture, media, and Hollywood all try to influence a generation. Now the question is, does the generation and the culture define Hollywood or does Hollywood define the culture? I think it's a little bit of both in there. And we're seeing an incredible assault upon this younger generation. And through the influence of social media and liberal secular worldviews that are being pushed down our uh, young people's throat, we're witnessing a huge battle. And get this, the government cannot fix it. We are beginning, though, to witness a modern Jesus movement. On some of our college campuses right now, a generation is sick and tired of being sick and tired of the fluff of the world, and they're trying to get right with their Creator. One of the core values, and if you've been here, we're walking through our core values, and you can see it all out in the hallway. But today we're talking about one of the core values for us 
is to fight for the hearts of the next generation. We believe that our kids are a vital part of the church now and in the future. We desire to partner with parents to shepherd the hearts of kids so they can know and love Jesus forever. So a core value, and if you've not been around, a core value is those lenses, when they come together, we look through those lenses to find how God has established us to go forth for his kingdom. And if you have your Bibles, I want you to turn with me to Psalm 71. In Psalm 71, I'm going to read just a few verses, beginning with verse 14. And I want you to, to see... Uh, what the psalmist says. Most commentators agree that King David wrote this psalm. He wrote it uh, later in life. He wrote it as a, uh, a reflection, a reflection on the goodness of God, but he also reflected on the devastation of his son Absalom rebelling against him. He, King David was a man that had high highs and low lows. And in Psalm 71, beginning verse 14, I want to just pick up part of it. And it says this. But I will hope continually and will praise you yet more and more. My mouth will tell of your righteous acts, of your deeds of salvation all the day. For their number is past my knowledge. With the mighty deeds of the Lord God, I will come. I will remind them of your righteousness, yours alone. O oh God, from my youth you have taught me, and I still proclaim your wondrous deeds. So even to old age and gray hairs, O oh God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those to come. Your righteousness, O oh God, reaches the high heavens, you who have done great things, O oh God, who is like you? I want to read verse 18 one more time. It says, so even to old age and gray hairs, O oh God, do not forsake me until I proclaim your might to another generation, your power to all those who are to come. King David is recognizing the incredible power of God. And he shares basically two things. God, you have not left me, and I want you to live, let me live long enough so I can proclaim to another generation of your might. David was not going to let his past and what he had gone through affect what he was desiring to do. Pam and I, one Saturday, were working, walking through Old Settlers Park several years ago. And as we were walking through on Saturday, if you've ever been at Old Settlers on Saturday, you got it, Saturday in the park. Chicago sang a song about it. This would be Old Settlers Park. And tons of things are going on. But under one particular pavilion, there was a group of Asian people. And they were a large number. And they had separated their children out, and they were talking with their children. Now, I can only imagine what they were doing. They were no longer in their homeland. 
so they were meeting to reminisce about their homeland, and then they took their children out who had not experienced the homeland to tell them about their culture and where they had come from. And I thought, man, is this not the responsibility of the church today? We are no longer in our homeland. We're in a strange land, and we're coming together as family, and we allow our children who have not experienced yet the, the, the culture where we come from, and we want to train them and equip them uh, in, in the culture as followers of Jesus. That's what we're called to do. But there are many challenges if we're going to fight for the heart of the next generation. And I, I want to, just for a few minutes, I want to give you some... Uh, thoughts on, on ministering and fighting for the hearts of the next generation. And you can take notes and it will help you. Number one is this. Our children must see adults hungering, and for, uh, hungering for and pursuing Jesus. Our kids must see adults hungering for and pursuing Jesus. What do they see? Do they see a form of religiosity or do they see people, adults, who are, who are focusing on Jesus? You see, more things are caught than taught. We want to teach, read a book. Uh, let me lecture you. Let me tell you, your life is so loud I can't hear what you're teaching me. And our kids are looking at our lives and what are they seeing? Are they seeing division and anger over earthly matters? Much dependent on the government? We complain about the government to fix things. Are they seeing a generation of cynicism, uh, uh, negative thoughts on their current generation? And sometimes we forget, we, we complain about a, a current generation or generation that's behind us, we, we got to look at ourselves and blame ourselves because we raised them. And I know it's easy to cast stones, but are they seeing cynicism? Are they seeing us hold to a form of religion and denying the power thereof? Are they seeing a sporadic love for the church, the bride of Christ? In other words, if something better doesn't come along, then we'll go to worship today. Is that what they're seeing in our lives? Are they seeing a very casual faith, a comfort and ease, and they're saying, what is worth dying for? And are they seeing that in us, that a life that was given to Jesus is worth dying for? And are they seeing a generation live off yesterday's bread instead of fresh encounters with Jesus? Are they seeing a generation who are living off of yesterday's bread? What kind of generation are we seeing? But we must be hungering for and pursuing Jesus. The second thing I want you to grab is this. 
We must not worship our kids. Let me repeat that. We must not worship our kids. Yes, raising children is a priority. The scriptures are full of that. But we're not called to worship them. Many homes have become kid-centric. In other words, the kids define everything you do, what you eat, where you go, whether you're going to go to church or not. The kids determine everything instead of being a Christ-centric home. I read about a parenting style that has come into being. You know, we talk about helicopter parenting. We talk about uh, a helicopter parent as one who oversees everything that their kid is going through. They micromanage their life and they oversee everything. So that's a helicopter parent. But I heard about a new, new parent called Apache helicopter parent. And what an Apache helicopter parent does, they, same as a helicopter parent, they're overseeing everything in their kid's life. But if anything comes close to their kid that will make them uncomfortable, they shoot it down. And some of you are teachers, and you know exactly what I'm talking about. There was a day when parents would back you as a teacher. And today, they're going to back their kid and come after you as the teacher. And so, we have got to be careful about having kid-centric homes. And we've got to be careful about having a kid-centric ministry when it comes to our family ministry. We must be Christocentric. We must be Christ-centered in our lives. Only then are we going to have the direction that God has for us. And what happens when kids feel like everything revolves around them? Then what happens is they do not develop coping skills. And it's been shown statistically over and over and over again that most of our teenagers, or a good portion of our teenagers, I can't say most, but are dealing with some form of mental illness because of the influence that they're getting hit with. We must return to a kid-centric home and make sure our family ministry is kid uh, is Christ-centric. Christ-centric homes and ki a Christ-centered church. At Central, our desire is to remain Christocentric. What's happening in our kids' church right now is they're teaching them about Jesus. What happens even in our preschool, they're loving on them in Jesus' name, they're singing songs about Jesus, they're not singing songs about just to make the kids feel better or to uh, babysit. They're teaching them about Jesus. And you know, Jesus wanted children around him. In Mark chapter 10, the children are coming and they're hanging around Jesus. And the disciples said, no, take them away. And Jesus said, don't suffer the children to come unto me. For such is the kingdom of heaven. 
Jesus wanted children around him. We must be careful about being kid-centric in our homes and in our family ministry. Third thought, our major role is not for outward behavior, but for heart transformation. Our major role is not for outward behavior, but for heart transformation. I want you to grab that. Yes, we teach a moral code. Yes, you can't teach the scriptures without teaching about uh, certain things that God has for us to live out. But we're called to shepherd hearts and not turn them into legalistic robots. Hear me. Kids will mess up. How do I know that? I raised three. I've got four grandkids. But I tell you above all else, I grew up. And I knew what I was like. And so kids will mess up. But here's the deal. Are they going to be greeted with legalism? Or are they going to be greeted with grace? We are out to shepherd hearts and transform the hearts. And only Christ can do that. Love can be tough at times. But it must be tempered with grace. I'm not taking anything away from you parents as far as tough love, but it must be tempered with grace. I remember one of our daughters made a decision that was not met with favor for myself or Pam. And uh, she made it as a young adult, and she made this decision. You know what bothered me maybe more than anything in that whole situation? I was so selfish that I thought it reflected on me. I was more angry with the thought that how are other people going to see me than loving my daughter through this relationship? Did I agree with her decision? No. But I had to call her up and ask her forgiveness because I was more concerned at how I looked in thing instead of my relationship with her. Love is hard, but our major role is to shepherd hearts and not change behavior. Yes, we want to groom. Yes, we want to give them guidelines. But we want to shepherd the heart. We don't want to turn them in to little robots that are just going to do what we ask them to do. Because I'm telling you, if it's just behavior... The time will come when they'll walk away from it. Their heart must be transformed. Fourth thought. We must help parents 
get a vision for their home. We must help parents get a vision for their home. You're saying, okay, vision for my home? I've never heard that. Yes, you have a vision for the church. Yes, we have a vision for my uh, business. But a vision for my home? Think about it. The family is the first community God established even before the church. When families are out of God's plan, the church will be out of God's plan. When the church is out of God's plan, the community is out of God's plan. When the community is out of God's plan, the nation is out of God's plan. And when the nation is out of God's plan, the world is in a mess. We must get a vision for our family. If your vision for your kids is for them to be a concert pianist and a professional baseball player, you make that vision choice. If your vision is to, for them to grow up in a godly situation so that they're world changers and they walk out of relationship with Jesus, you make the vision choice. Parents, you make the vision choice for your family. And as a congregation, as a body of believers, we must help you develop a vision that is godly and Christ-centered. There is an incredible attack upon the family today. Why is that an attack? Well, it goes back to this very thing. In that if Satan knows that if the family is disrupted, it screws everything up, then he's going to attack that family. And parents, we are called to be the overseers. Dads, you're really called to be the overseers. And we're called to guide our family in a Christ-centered way. So what? I'm going to give you three so what's reflections from me. The first one is this. We currently do not know who is in our family ministry. And you're saying, well, Mark, that's not good. No, I, I, we, we know their name because we slap it on their back uh, <laughs> when we have them. But we currently do not know who God is going to raise up in our family ministry. Might there be a great preacher might they be a, a doctor with the cure of cancer? Might they be a, a missionary evangelist or worship leader? Nurses, plumbers, electricians, IT people, engineers, teachers, politicians, dads and moms that are pursuing Jesus and doing that as a career. I know that they're eating Play-Doh and stuff in there right now, but you don't know. Who's in there? 
And we're called to shepherd those hearts, to love them. And all of you were the same way. Somebody loved you enough to share the gospel with you and help you to grow in your faith. And that's what we're called to do. We we need to help kids dream big dreams. Dream big dreams. And how they can be world changers. With God, nothing is impossible. We've got to instill that. So we currently do not know who's in our family ministry. Second of all, my reflection, we must resource and sacrifice for the next generation. We must resource and sacrifice for the next generation. You hear us talk around here about the 4 to 14 window. Well, what does that mean? That means this. Over 70% of people who come to a relationship with Jesus Christ do it within the ages of 4 to 14. And I would say that to most of you in this room. And so we must resource and sacrifice to make sure that the 4 to 14 window We see that as a mission field right in our midst. We must put our best foot forward for our family ministry and not leftovers. We don't exist to babysit kids, but to train and equip equip them, and it takes all of us. I'm not saying it takes a village to raise a child, but it takes a body of Christ to, uh, to embrace and fight for the hearts of the next generation. And here's the deal. We say the next generation, but we're a multi-generational church. We have, we have little Jonah, Daniel, that was up here. And uh, he's one of our newborns. We have babies born all the time. Good night. <laughs> we have babies born all the time. And then we have... Uh, the other spectrum, we have people that uh, are older in years, and we see everything in between. We are a multi-generational church. Who is the most important in this congregation? All of them. We're all part of the body of Christ. Students, you're just as important as the oldest adult in this room. We must look at the body of Christ in the way that God has put us together. Let me share my last reflection. When we devote kingdom ministries to kids, it can and will get messy. When we fight for the hearts of the next generation, it will get messy. What do you mean, Mark? It will get messy. Anytime you deal with family ministry, you deal with students, you deal with kids, it's going to get messy. Kids break things. Kids make mistakes. Kids are loud and boisterous. Our youth 
worship a little bit more lively than we do on Sunday morning. Chairs will get broke. Things are going to happen. But kids, like adults, are broken and flawed. And many people say, young couples, well, we'll have kids when we can afford it. I, I think I arrogantly used to say that. Uh, we had Josh, our firstborn, and when he was 18 months old, we were expecting uh, again because we wanted our kids close together. Now, this is back in the day when you didn't get sonograms unless you desperately needed it. And so two weeks before uh, Pam's due date, or, or before they were born, we got twins. We did not budget for twins. <laughs> we, my thought, is, can we send one back? <laughs> uh, is this, is, is this going to cost double? Yes! <laughs> it does cost double. And we paid them off for years. And here's the deal, though. When can you afford to have kids? You can't. If we're going to have a ministry that reaches all generations, it's going to get messy at times, but it's well worth it. In fact, we're disobedient if we don't do it. So, how do I close this? In Psalm 71... David is reflecting over... David was not a good dad. I wish I could say everything about King David was great, but he was not a good dad. He had a son, Amnon, rape his half-sister, Tamar. And so Absalom stood in and killed Amnon. And then Absalom is eventually going to rebel against his dad. David was not a good dad. And, and as some of you say, well, that's a good excuse. Let me, let me back up. Adam and Eve had a perfect father in a perfect environment, and they still rebelled. But David did not let his failure as a dad keep him from pinning an incredible word that says, Oh God, would you keep me alive, not forsake me, so that I can share your might with another generation and those yet to come. I want you to know we are those who have yet to come. He is praying for us at that point. We have a responsibility to fight for the hearts of the next generation. Many of you have seen the Rocky movies. I, I guarantee you they got some age on them. But, you know, you watch the Rocky movies, and uh, you got Rocky Balboa. Yeah, I don't want to run it for you. <laughs> you, got, you got the Rocky movies. And Rocky won, Apollo Creed just... 
beats a guitar out of Rocky. I mean, it's brutal. And uh, uh, Rocky II, uh, same thing. <laughs> and, and then you got, Rocky III was Mr. T, wasn't it? Mr. T beat the uh, sap out of Rocky. And then number four was, I, I hear these are, that's what these are about. Uh, Rocky IV was the uh, big Russian guy who beats the sap out of Apollo Creed, and then he comes after Rocky. But there's a time in each of those movies, you know what it is. Rocky gets the eye of the tiger. And he starts, it's coming, babe. He's about to, Apollo Creed, it's coming for you. Mr. T, you're going down. Big Russian guy, you're going down. Because he has the eye of the tiger, and all of a sudden, he is going to win. He had gotten beat up, but he gets that eye of the tiger, and he's going to go. Here's my thought. Chew on this. I see in this day, I see that the church, and especially a generation, is tired of Satan beating them up, and they're getting the eye of the tiger, and they're praying unto the Father, God, do, do it in our day. Do it in our day. God, and I think Satan is backing into a corner right now because he is seeing the power of God on display in our country. And are we going to jump on it? Are we not? It's in our court. But we will fight for the hearts of the next generation. We will love them in Jesus' name.